back. Yes, we're back. In the first part of this uh, series on the Ukraine and uh, Russia and everything's going on now, we talked about the brief recent history of the fall of the Soviet Union and how that kind of led us up until, well, a couple of weeks ago. Now on to part two. Yes, I think we are way too soft in the way uh, NATO and the Western allies and leaders are handling this situation. And I want to talk about Zelensky a bit, President Zelensky, and how he stayed to fight with his people in the face of war. You know, even though he was presented with the opportunity to to flee Ukraine and pretty much go to safety with his family, he has a wife and two wonderful children, he has two dogs, and he stayed back, staying there with his people and not giving up on his country and on the democracy Ukrainians want so much. When the guy they have, at least they've claimed to throw some political weight behind, uh, finds himself in real trouble and needing to collect on the promises that the U.S. made to him, the surrender move is, hey, you want us to give you a ride? We'll send a private jet to come pick you up and they'll drop you off in uh, Hawaii and you can have a nice house on the beach. And you never have to worry about this thing that we don't want to deal with ever again. How about that? Yes. No, you're completely right. Because let's face it, if Zelensky would have left, that would have meant capitulation. The Ukrainian forces, the military would have would be left without a leader. Yeah. The words that changed everything were President Volodymyr Zelensky's words when he said, I need ammunition, I don't need a ride. Yeah. Okay, I'm starting to cry again. We need, give me a second. I, I don't know why I get so emotional. Don't cry over that. That's baller stuff he said right there. You should be applauding for that one. No, I'm not crying because it's bad. I'm crying because it's so courageous. I don't know. It's just yeah. you know, crying because that's the utmost proof of courage and unity with his people. He didn't want to leave his country in the face of war. And if I just might make uh, an analogy, because I've seen this meme online and it's everywhere and it's really good. The memes about Zelensky staying behind in the face of war and Ted Cruz fleeing to Cancun, leaving his dog behind to freeze in the face of a winter storm. It's perfect, isn't that, it? <laughs> that, <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I don't want to minimize this and turn this into a joke. You know, it's not nothing to laugh about right now at this moment. But it's that always mean- time to laugh at Ted Cruz. Let's be honest. The best, the best. <laughs> that's the best thing I've seen in the past month. We had another freeze in Texas this year, and there was a uh, there was a picture of Ted Cruz walking through the airport with "Winter is Coming" printed on his own. <laughs> that is, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> One of the things I want to address is how did Putin happen? First of all, Putin killed Russian citizens to consolidate his power by blowing them up in their sleep in the now infamous apartment bombings incidents of 1999. He did that to have a pretext to start the war with Chechnya. There's also the Moscow theater hostage crisis of 2002 when the FSB gassed Russian women, men and children who were attending uh, the premiere of a very equivalent of a Broadway show, right? So many, many people died there too. Besides those two things, pretty much he ended up killing everyone who investigated these incidents and revealed the truth. And by the way, that's why Litvinenko was poisoned with polonium-210, because he published a book called Blowing Up Russia, detailing how the FSB was behind these false flag operations. Putin also killed journalists, dissidents, he imprisoned anyone who criticized him. Uh, He attempted to murder a presidential candidate in a foreign sovereign country, Viktor Yushchenko. Countless many other poisoning, including Navalny more recently, invading Crimea, the innumerable killings of foreign citizens on foreign soil by using nerve agents like Novichok in the United Kingdom. That's an act of war. The cyber attacks on Western countries, also an act of war. Shooting a civilian plane out of the sky, the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. All 298 passengers were killed. 80 of them were children. And the Dutch joint investigation revealed that four of the guys who did this were GRU, Russia's military intelligence service. Basically, like FSB, but abroad. Now, what did the Western leaders do when all these things were happening? 
Not much. No, press releases, press conferences, verbal condemnations, and at best, you know, some more sanctions and slaps on the wrist. Pretty much. Yes, yeah. which are obviously not a deterrent for Putin. It's important to mention in this context, though, that, for example, London is a city fueled by oligarch money. It runs on Russian money. Plus, the European Union needs oil and gas from Russia. So European Union and NATO have been extremely lenient towards Putin historically in the last, I don't know, few decades. I lived here in the 1990s. So I remember the fall of the Soviet Empire and how it was portrayed in the U.S. And everybody assumed that, okay, we win, we're the good guys. It is never that simple. Um, what was left out, what was between the lines of that was, we are going to profiteer from the former Soviet Union. And so we need a drunken idiot in charge of it who has a very clear price tag printed on his forehead. And that's what they got in Yeltsin. So Yeltsin was not exactly what one would call a highly motivated president of a large country. And all these guys in Western countries were asleep at the wheel when the KGB just takes over in his place. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> that, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And you know that not only did Putin manage to get in power so smoothly uh, after Yeltsin, there was a deal made there. Actually, Boris Yeltsin and his family struck a deal with Putin that if Yeltsin resigns, Putin will guarantee that Boris Yeltsin and his family will be immune to prosecution for any acts of corruption they have done. Well, that's nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's it's really shocking, but it is what it is. That's a history. It's not right now. No, it's really not shocking. The KGB guys who are now Russian mobsters have acclimated to the uh, the principles of capitalism very well. I would say. Yes, that is true. We also had very few, very few FSB officers who actually defected and tried to change things, but they ended up dead. All of them. Yeah. Most famous one, Alexander Litvinenko. But let's be honest, only on day four of the invasion, the powers to be finally, finally decided on expelling some Russian banks from the SWIFT banking system, not all of them. In my opinion, it seems the sanctions we've been imposing so far, and I mean we, all of the NATO countries, all of the European Union countries, all these sanctions are just way too flimsy to have any effect on Putin. Wait a minute. Now, it's a terrible inconvenience if I have to move my billions of dollars from uh, Bankovich Incorporated to Bankoflot before I transfer it to Grand Cayman <laughs> and head there in my Gulfstream 550. I mean, you imagine the hassle that is for your typical Russian Exactly. Like, like we made their life. <laughs> <laughs> we made their life so, so hard. They have to use another bank now, not their regular bank. Can you imagine? This is a good place as any. So a friend of mine that uh, I did you know, some work for charity organizations with years ago called me a couple of nights ago and pointed out, that there were Aeroflot 737s running back and forth between Moscow and the middle of nowhere on the coast in Siberia nonstop. So not only do you have to transfer your money from one bank across the street to the other bank before you wire it out to Bermuda or wherever you're going to go stay, but you have to load your Ferrari in a 737 and fly it to Siberia and then load it on a boat. I mean, there's a lot of logistics involved here if you are a, uh, you know, a Russian corporation owner and... An oligarch, yeah. I mean, the, do you take the Ferrari and the Bentley or you, do you just take one? I mean... It's a heartbreaking decision. It is. I, 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 can, only, I can only relate to how bad the oligarchs are feeling now yes. and how much Putin is suffering, yes. 
Now, I would like to make a point here. The enemy is not the Russian people. So when we say the Russians, we don't mean the people. We mean the oligarchs, Putin, and the cronies and mobsters that are in the Kremlin and stealing from the Russian people. The Russian people are victims too. The amount of money Putin and his mobsters have stolen from them is immense, almost incommensurable, and they want democracy as well. You know, we've seen thousands of Russians who took to the streets chanting glory to Ukraine in support of the Ukrainian people. Of course, thousands of them also have been arrested, even though the protests were more than peaceful. Putin can't have that image projected into the West. The Russian people have been the most unfortunate recipients of revolutions in the past couple of hundred years out of any major world power that I can think of. I don't know if we're going to get into this right now, but it's that's a whole other story in itself. Yeah, that's a whole... That's, I, I can spend two podcast. hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could make another podcast about that. But yes, generally, the Russian people and the people of all the former Soviet bloc countries uh, have been... Everybody who's been in, in Russia's shadow, so to speak, has been suffering... And the threat has always been there. And things move really slowly when somebody like Putin is in charge. Every time they get themselves wrapped up in some big conflict that's supposed to make their lives better, it somehow finds its way toward worse. So, yes, um, very just bad luck. I mean, you got to catch a break every now and then, I would think. But Yeah. Now, let's talk about the invasion. Between February 1st and February 18th, Putin amassed, according to the U.S. and NATO, 190,000 troops at the Ukraine border, plus the tanks, plus everything else. The U.S. said on February 18 that this is, and I quote, the biggest mobilization of troops since the Second World War. So we knew, we knew exactly what the Ukrainians will be facing in the very likely event that Putin invades. Now, Russia started the invasion on February 23rd, and on February 26th, against all odds, they hadn't taken Kiev yet. They hadn't taken it now. But at the end of the day, after President Zelensky refused to leave, I think those words that he said, the fight is here, I need ammunition, not a ride, those are the words that change the situation a bit because the more important sanctions followed after his refusal to leave. That's when things really started to move in the right direction, in my opinion. You know, the, the previous Soviet premiers, and to some degree Yeltsin, you know, they were mostly just bureaucrats that had been climbing the ladder long enough that the last rung to climb was chairman of the Politburo or whatever. They were not really modern media figures like Putin is. I mean, this guy has like a whole PR machine behind him. I mean, he's... He's pretty well versed in projecting his own persona. You know, his the, the Soviet Union was so insular compared to how Putin is that this is it's a completely different situation for anybody who's having to deal with it. You are entirely right. And actually, on his last birthday, Putin celebrated his 69th birthday um, on October 7th, I think. And to mark this occasion, the verified account at Russia tweeted that he inspires films, books, poems, news, even myths and legends. Anyway, the the tweet was accompanied by this photo of Putin near a bear. Uh, Putin... <laughs> no. Wait, wait, because the best part is still to come. Uh, he was wearing this suit, looked all presidential, and he was in kind of like a tundra, I don't know, in the wilderness with a bear near him. But it turned out that the bear was photoshopped from an image displayed on the American Museum of uh, Natural History website. <laughs> See, it doesn't matter that he got caught at that because of where he stole the picture from. Whoever pitched this to him, they get it. It's like, no, if you steal that picture and, the, and you get caught you're still like rubbing it in America's face. So even if you get caught, it doesn't matter. It works either way. Exactly. I think <laughs> I think you actually uh, made a very good point. It does not matter. He has no shame and he has no honor in that sense. It does not matter. He is rubbing it in our face, everything in our faces. 
it's ridiculous. So yeah, he's this, he's like he's the he's the modern real life Don Quixote. That thing where he's like videos of himself riding a horse with no shirt on, like he's on the cover of a romance novel or something. I mean, who like, who comes up with this stuff? <laughs> his big PR team, as you said, his image is constructed just like you construct a house out of bricks. You know, there have been discussions recently I've seen about his mental state, and there have been photos of him sitting at this humongously long table, yes, right? Yes, big table. And he's on one side, yeah, he's on one side, and then his advisors or whoever he's meeting with is way, way, way on the other side of the table. And when I say long tables, I don't know, I think it's in feet would be like, I know it's at least 15 meters. It's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of table. <laughs> it's, I it's, think you give Trump too much credit. Like, I can see Donald Trump, like, sitting and eating Cheetos and ice cream and watching himself on TV at Mar-a-Lago saying, look at this guy. He's got a big table. I love a guy with a big table, you know. And that's <laughs> that's probably, like, his whole thing. It's like, big, big table. table. I got to get the big table. <laughs> that's Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if the next press conference Trump does or whatever, he's going to be behind a huge, huge table, huge table. Just something that dumb would completely fixate him. Look at the size of that table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's just, it goes to show the length to which his image creators will go. It doesn't matter. And the state-controlled Russian media, which is almost all Russian media, kept saying on TV and radios and in the newspapers, our brothers will welcome us with flowers. So that's another thing, you know, that is presented to the Russian people to where it's made to seem that the Ukrainians are so very happy with the invasion. I don't know where I've heard that before. Oh, yeah, that the Iraqis want to be uh, free of Saddam Hussein. Yes, they will welcome the bombs. I want to point out that... NATO and the Western Allies and the European Union, everybody else, all the countries that have a say in this matter, should not be so afraid of World War III because Putin is not dumb. He's not going to want to start World War III. He knows that means global disaster. There's no coming back for any country from something like that. Like Einstein said, I know not what weapons will be used in World War III, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Putin knows that too. And Einstein also said, and I think this is what we should take from this, the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. I'm not even sure that those rockets would work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, they've been sitting around for 30 years. We know how much America likes maintenance. Not much. It costs too much. So I think if there's anything that we should all take away from the last five or six years in the Western world is that whatever the dumbest thing is, that's what will happen. And I think if they got to the point of everybody being so mad that we're going to shoot off the nukes, I think half of them would probably fail to ignite or fall apart or sputter and die inside their silos and go nowhere. And then they would have to figure out, well, what are we going to do now? Because there, guess what? Putin's didn't work either. So <laughs> that would be a very good outcome just in case World War Three would start. But what I'm saying, I don't think it will, because truly, truly, that's not what Putin wants. It's not. So I just want to say glory to Ukraine and I am really hoping that these people will come out victorious in one way or another because they deserve it and they're courageous and they really, really value democracy so much so that they would die for it. And that's something that you can't not admire. We recorded this episode over a span of two different days. So we're going to put a little break here in the middle and we'll come back with part two after the music. In the meantime, since we recorded Putin Invades Ukraine Part 1, 
the West, NATO and European Union countries have stepped up and sent military aid. Even Germany changed their policy 180 degrees and sent armaments. And the Ukrainians are putting up a hell of a fight. The Russians, though, have been striking right near NATO's front door in western Ukraine in Lviv. And now they seem to be focused on almost exclusively attacking civilians. The images coming out of Ukraine are heartbreaking. We've all seen them in Mariupol, injured pregnant women, children, mass graves. Putin is now bombing indiscriminately from the air, maternities, children's hospital, a theater where people were sheltering and they had written outside on the pavement in chalk in Russian, children, so that the planes could see that from the sky and not bomb the theater. Well, they still bombed it. There are still people caught under the rubbles. Nobody knows how many people died. Updates are still coming in. What a shameful time to be a Russian soldier or anyone in the Russian military. I don't know how they can sleep at night. And I saw this video on CNN. This father was crying, not crying, he was bawling over the dead body of his baby and the sounds he made. I... I do not have words for it, but what is happening there is beyond any of us would have imagined. And over 3 million refugees to this point have fled Ukraine. 3 million displaced people. There's this video that is on all the TV stations everywhere, all Western media. It's a lonely child who crossed the border alone. And he's holding this small plastic bag and he he's just crying and walking. He looks... I, I don't know. It's just horrible to think that humans can do that to other humans. And there are people hold, holding their pets. And I saw some photos of an elderly woman. She's in a wheelchair and she's holding her cat close to her chest. It, it just looks like that cat was the most important being to her. And the way she was holding the cat, she had no luggage. She had nothing, just the cat. And some people are carrying their elderly dogs for kilometers on end in their arms or on their backs. Putin just needs to pay, and I think he will. We both have pets, Neil and I, and on this note, I want to make sure to thank Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and Hungary for canceling all the restrictions for refugees entering these countries with pets. Yeah, all of that sounds like what the Soviets were doing in Afghanistan in the 80s. And I think this is quickly turning into Putin's Afghanistan. and. I'm going to go through some numbers from the standpoint of comparing the two countries, uh, Ukraine and Russia, what they have, what that means as far as how I think this is going to progress. So this was reported when all this started in the first couple of days of March. The numbers that they had were Russia has a roughly four to one advantage in active duty soldiers. They have a roughly two to one advantage in reserve soldiers. They have a roughly three to one advantage in artillery units. And they have a roughly three to one advantage in terms of armored vehicles that are not tanks. We're talking heavy cargo vehicles, armored personnel carriers, stuff like that. Uh, light assault armored vehicles, basically. They have, these are their big advantages. Russia had a six to one advantage in tanks. They had a 15 to 1 advantage in helicopters and a 15 to 1 advantage in fighter jets. So what did Putin start all this with in terms of his big advantages? Armor, tanks specifically, um, helicopters, and fighter jets and bombers. So what's happened in the past week? We know that these giant convoys of Russian armored vehicles that were heading towards Kiev uh, were basically sitting ducks and they got stuck. They got some of them got blown up uh, by the drones that the Ukrainians got from Turkey. Uh, now we're told that the U.S. is going to send them more drones. So that's a bigger problem for Putin's giant armored convoys. So let's take that advantage away. Helicopters, also our Soviet, former Soviet friends surely remember from Afghanistan, helicopters and Stinger missiles don't get along, and Stinger missiles are cheap. 
Uh, we've already seen videos of Stinger missiles literally plucking Russian helicopters out of the sky. So helicopters are not going to turn this in Putin's favor uh, any more than it already is. Uh, that's not his answer. So that leaves the fighter jets and the bombers. I was researching all this this morning because I knew we were going to have to you know, modify what we had previously recorded because this stuff changes so fast. And, you know, that's what we're recording now. And I, the thing I kept finding over and over is why doesn't Putin send his air force? Where is Putin's air force? Now they've, you know, we know that they're bombing cities and civilian targets, but I think we've also seen that the Ukrainians have mobile surface to air missiles, which are, effective from what they say. They say they've shot down 40 Russian airplanes. Other people are saying they're, you know, padding their numbers a bit to to brag a little, which people do in a war, it's fine. The number may be closer to half of that. And this is as of a week ago. So, in any case, let's uh, by comparison, in Serbia in the 1990s, uh we do a comparison against the US Air Force Serbia shot roughly as many rockets at U.S. airplanes as the Iraqis did in the second Iraq war. They shot down three. They managed to shoot down three U.S. airplanes with all of the missiles they shot. And the Iraqis, throughout the entirety of the Iraq invasion in the early 2000s, again, shot roughly as many missiles at U.S. airplanes as the Serbians did. They shot down 40, but... The key difference being that the Serbians did a pretty good job. They shoot, move, shoot, move. So they don't lose one every time they shoot. The Iraqis lost a surface-to-air missile battery every time they shot because you saw where it came from, so they're going to go get it. So they were one for one. That's a not a good trade. And what all this boils down to is it seems like, like the Serbians in the late 90s, the Ukrainians are doing a good job. They shoot, move, shoot, move. And, I mean, we're seeing videos and pictures of Russian fighter jets on the ground in pieces. We're seeing videos of Russian helicopters on the ground in pieces. So they're doing a good job. And I think Putin may be afraid to commit the rest of his air force. I think that may be the bottom line is this is already maybe turned around and Putin is afraid, which is why he's continuing to double up on civilian targets because it makes him look tough on the news. When in reality, I don't think he is. I think it's quickly slipping through his fingers. Yes, you're completely right. I think he's not only not tough, he's a thug and he's a coward because attacking pregnant women and children and civilians is not what a strong leader does. It's not It's not even close. I don't even want to talk about it. The point is, you are completely right. And uh, as we said in episode one, the Russian army was gargantuan, is gargantuan. And we also said that Ukraine would not be able to withstand it without help. And finally, a little bit late, but the surface-to-air missiles and all the stuff that they really needed finally arrived, and we're already sending more. So that's great. That's absolutely great news. And I'm very happy that NATO, the EU, all the West, the Western countries are finally rallying as they should be. And they should have done a little bit earlier, but... Late is better than never because we can see already Putin's situation, despite all expectations, you know, he, Putin is not looking good right now. No, he's really not. So I want to also praise Zelensky a bit because he deserves it. He was amazing in managing this situation and this crisis, and he's a real leader. I am in awe, in awe. His address to the Canadian Parliament and to the US Congress, flawless, and his courage He's a former actor. Uh, he played in a series called Servant of the People. And he was playing a down-on-his-luck high school teacher character who is thrust into the Ukrainian presidency after his rant about corruption goes viral. And then he became president in real life. And he couldn't have been... Uh, is this guy... This So this guy is literally the Ukrainian West Wing president. Then. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Like in that West Wing TV series. Yes. My admiration for Volodymyr Zelensky has no limits. Throughout the entire ordeal, he was just perfect. He was and is doing every single thing 100% right. There is... He's impeccable. 
his leadership is impeccable. Yeah, it's he's done a good job. He has. And we discussed this before we started recording. I wonder, and I'm going to I'm going to research this too. I'm sure we're going to do more episodes about Putin and Ukraine and all this stuff. I wonder at this point how many of the generals in charge of Putin's army are just KGB guys. I wonder how many are, you know, left over with military experience from the previous regime, at least, because that's the best thing off the top of my head that I can come up with a hypothetical for how this has gone so badly all of a sudden for them. If he's replaced generals with KGB guys, uh, that would make sense. It just, it baffles me. Yes. That in the age of everybody, literally everybody on the planet has satellite imagery. Everybody who has a phone Google or a maps. laptop can open, can open <laughs> up Google Maps. I mean, we saw that in the early 2000s. There were ISIS guys sitting around a conference table looking at a Google Maps presentation on a projector about which oil platforms they were going to take over in southern Saudi Arabia. And so, I mean, we were laughing about that then. If everybody on the planet has satellite imagery on their phone, why would you put a 60-kilometer-long armored convoy on the highway and think it's going to make it to where you want it to go. That is, it's just comically ridiculous. Yes, it is, but uh, I do think there was a reasoning behind that initially when the invasion started. We all saw that in the first, I don't know, seven to ten days, the West was very slow to react. We didn't send Ukraine the surface-to-air missiles they needed, the air defense systems they needed, the drones. That came a little later. So his expectation was that he would get Kiev in a few days. And to be honest, the West thought the same thing. That's why they uh, proposed to Zelensky. They offered him a ride. But the, the one thing that Putin did not predict, and I think the West didn't expect it either, was the Ukrainians heroic fight and the way they turned this situation and turned everything upside down for Putin. It's their courage and the way that they have been fighting is what rendered Putin's massive army, well, not useless, but... A lot less effective than they thought it was going to be. Exactly, yeah. That's what I think happened. It's the Ukrainians. They deserve all the credit. And that's my opinion. It's all them. So circling back to those numbers I mentioned earlier, just a little bit, if you are defending a fixed position against somebody else, you know, three to one, uh, that's, uh, that's doable. You know, if you're the one that gets a chance to, you know, reinforce the buildings and, you know, dig the holes and, you know, set up barricades and you know, all this stuff that goes along with, you know, fighting a ground war. If you're the one that gets to defend a spot, three to one, it's not so bad. Uh, where they got you is artillery, tanks, stuff like that. But it seems to me that Putin just completely bungled the ground vehicle portion of this. I wonder if he thought putting all of those armored vehicles on one highway headed towards Kiev with some sort of PR flex that would get them to quit. Yeah, yeah, that could have been, you know, psychological warfare as well. That's that something be- he would yes. do. I mean, it's it's him, you know, it's him. So if that's the case... I mean, it's easy for him to do from the long table in the Kremlin, but that's awfully dangerous if you're driving one of those trucks. I wouldn't want to be one of those Russian soldiers. Yes, for sure. And as you were mentioning, the people he has in charge and his uh, circle, uh, they're all probably FSB. And also there might be some experienced generals, but I know he fired some of them, the most experienced ones, who apparently did not agree to his approach. So he surrounded himself with... Yes, sir, people. Yes. And it's not working good for him. It's oligarchs, it's the FSB guys, and it's cronies and mobsters. That's the the people at the top in the Kremlin right now surrounding Putin. And obviously they have no real military vision or experience. Like, let's start again hypothetically from today. Let's take our assumptions at face value here. If he is starting to think this is turning against me, He's going to be even more afraid to commit his air force more than it already is, because if you do and half of your airplanes get shot out of the sky, then you are at the mercy 
of all of the people that you had scared of you only a week ago. I mean, that is a astonishing change of fortune in a week's time that you have gone from having the entire Western world afraid of you, you know, afraid to do anything because they're scared of what you might do. And in that short of time, it looks to me like it's turning the other way. This It's really baffling that this has changed this quickly, but I suppose this is an example of how modern warfare has changed that the fighter jets, it's not a big deal. Drones uh, that we now know that the Russian radar can't pick up are doing whatever they want. So if you can't move equipment, then you can't advance. Yes, and I have to say this with all my heart. I do believe that President Biden did an exceptional job getting all the NATO countries on the same page because it's not an easy fit. It's a massive diplomatic success and it also strengthened the alliance. The West did step up. And even though we did not send the fighter jets Zelensky has been asking for, we are, at the time of this recording, sending again even more military aid. This time, a lot of the items that the Ukrainians have been asking for, including the unmanned drones you were talking about and other relevant military help. And we have been sending, since our last recording, since part one, a lot of the stuff they needed, which is why the situation is looking now so bad for Putin. And yes, these things should have been sent earlier, but one has to consider how difficult it is to get 30 people to agree to a certain line of action, much less 30 leaders of 30 different NATO countries, each with their own interests. So the US president did really good here, and I am very proud of this right now. And you know, nobody complained more than I did that we are not doing enough. I was very upset when we said no to sending the Polish MiGs to Ukraine. And about that, I was going to ask you, Neil, why do you think we said no? Well, there's two reasons. And so I'm going to try to make this as quick as I can. It's a little bit technical, not too bad. We are not in the Cold War anymore. It's not 1989. The typical fighter jet that Russia has or that the U.S. has or that China has is so far superior to those MiG-29s from the end of the Soviet era that they would have gotten into what we're talking about now with they would have been easy targets for Putin to pluck out of the air and turn things back in his favor. So I know that Poland floated this idea and they were going to donate these airplanes to the U.S. and Ramstein and have the U.S. flying from there. That's kind of silly to begin with. On top of that, these Polish airplanes are typically set up for short-range missiles where they're used in, uh, in Eastern Europe, whereas anything that the U.S. or China or Russia flies is going to be able to shoot at another airplane from well outside of visual range, like 50 kilometers plus uh, in the Russians' case. So they're going to have inferior weaponry and maybe even inferior maneuverability. Uh, the Russians like a thing called thrust vectoring, which is similar to your kitchen faucet. You know, you spin it around and it blows the water in different directions. They can do the same thing with jet exhaust and it allows the airplane to do silly things like stop and turn on a dime. Uh, the U.S. tried a similar thing and they gave up on it because the U.S. has better missiles than the Russians do. But Whichever one of those two philosophies is the better idea, those old MiG-29s from Poland are not going to have both of them. So, yeah, you wouldn't want to be the guy strapped in that old Polish MiG-29 going to fight one of Putin's modern fighters. You are going to lose. That was a bad idea. Okay, so now I understand. And also, um, I want to point out that I still do believe that the public's pressure on NATO and the Western leaders to do more and Zelensky's appeals on TV and through social media made all the difference and got the West to actually move a bit faster and start helping faster and better and sending what they need. So, yes, I still believe the support we gave them and the other countries gave them should have been sent much earlier before the invasion started. I do stand by that. I also think some U.S. politicians like Adam Smith 
who, by the way, is a Democrat, should have swallowed their words instead of saying on CNN, the TV station that's watched across the world, that Ukrainians are too ignorant to operate sophisticated equipment. And that's why we're not sending it to them. He wasn't referring to the mix. He was referring to some other kind of surface-to-air missiles, which, by the way, in the meantime, we have sent them. Now, don't worry, I'll get to the Republicans in a minute, too. And I just want to say that all in all, so far, it seems that I have to give it to Biden. He did an amazing job handling this uh, this crisis. I think it's not looking well for the Russians. And there are some issues that I still have. You know, I criticize everybody. That's the thing. You'll see. Like, I'm not criticizing and I'm not praising just one side. But this was a massive fit, what this administration did so far. And I think despite my initial reluctance, uh, things are going better. I just wish we would have helped faster. Now, the Biden administration also said, we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Well, I personally still believe that was a mistake because what Putin heard was, we're not going to defend Moldova, Georgia, and so on. They're up for grabs. There's a concept called strategic ambiguity. And what that is, is even if that's your stance in a war, you shouldn't say it out loud. Just like we shouldn't have taken a limited no-fly zone off the table either. Even if we are not going to impose one, at least as far as Putin's perception goes, you don't want to say what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. You don't want to draw any lines in the sand. You want to keep all options open because if we then have to cross them in the future for some reason, we don't want to look silly. Biden also said in the first couple of weeks, oh, there's no boots on the ground in Ukraine. That was the same sort of thing. That's another thing that, exactly. you know, yeah. this is Democrats in particular love to declare what they're not going to do. I don't see the benefit of that either. There's, uh, you know, you, there's no reason to say that. Um, it doesn't, yes. you know, that's, that's something you say to people you want to vote for you in the next election. It has nothing to do whatsoever with your problem in front of you. I do get the thinking behind that. You want to put people's minds at ease, people at home here in the US, that their children and daughters and sons will not be sent to die in Ukraine, the ones that serve in military. Just to calm people down here in the US, to reassure people that we're not getting involved in a direct confrontation with the Russian military. I get it, but again, as far as strategic ambiguity, goes, we should have been a little less specific about all the things we want to do or not do. And by the way, in the meantime, we have kind of like turned a little bit and now the answers are not so specific. Again, if I had to summarize what's happened today uh, versus what's happened up to a week ago, it looks to me like our buddy Putin is afraid to commit the rest of his air force. And from the numbers that uh, Sandra sent to me from the news that was reported today, uh, before we started recording, that 800 more anti-aircraft uh, setups are headed the Ukraine's way. He's gonna be. I'm so excited about he's that. He's gonna I be just... even more afraid to commit more of his air force because there's no reason to throw good money after bad. And that was the last big advantage he had because. Helicopters don't do well against Stinger missiles, so helicopters are going to be limited. And tanks are not doing well either because he stuck them all on one road. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, where, yeah. it's like, it's again, I just, it's baffling how a KGB guy managed to become, for all intents and purposes, an emperor and tried to fight a war the KGB way, blowing up civilians, and inside of a week, it has started to slip through his fingers. It is really amazing that this has gone so badly for a superpower, not even 30 years ago. Yes, and um, I am very happy that it's going that way, but I still... See, that's the thing, because I can't have... I feel that every time I am getting a little excited and happy that Putin's army is doing bad, those images of pregnant women on stretchers and... Yeah. So, I mean... Okay, so what... 
Okay, so, so that's the thing. Like, I just every time I get excited when I watch the news that the Russians are not doing well, then I see all the other things that's happening and how cowardly they are attacking children and civilians and hospitals and maternities, and that immediately brings me back to reality, so to speak. We can't lose our grip. We have to keep pushing and we have to keep helping Ukraine and we have to keep sending them whatever they need. We just have to keep supplying them and keep trying to reinforce them with everything we can, you know, because even if they're weakened, the Russian army now they're still doing horrible, horrible things in Ukraine. I mean, they are war crimes. And also Biden said unequivocally, he said Putin is a war criminal. And that might seem that just words, but it is significant and a very good thing. Ukraine gained a complete victory in its case against Russia at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. And the International Court of Justice ordered Putin to immediately stop the invasion. Not that he will, he's not going to comply, even though the order is binding under international law. But ignoring the order will isolate Russia even further, which is good. And... And on top of that, since our last recording, when I was so upset that we are still importing gas and oil from Russia, well, we did stop that. Amazing. I'm so happy about that. All countries have increased sanctions, including us. So now these sanctions that we have in place now, they're no longer slaps on the wrist. They're real, real sanctions that will have dramatic effects on the Russian economy and um, serious consequences for them. It seems to me that the next question is, hypothetically, if all of this continues to go badly for Putin, when the Soviets saw their fortune turn against them in Afghanistan and retreated, that was the beginning of the end for the Soviet party. By that time, the Soviets had spent 40 years on military buildup. And what did they do? They lost. The same thing happened to the U.S. in Vietnam. They rolled into Vietnam thinking, this is an easy problem we'll just deal with real quick. And 10 years later, you know, we had political turmoil in the U.S. because they lost. So what happens after this? If this continues to go badly for Putin, I think it may be the beginning of the end for Putin. How are you going to give these glory to the motherland, big Eastern scary bear speeches to all the Russian people to keep yourself in power when your one big thing, Ukraine, a small country with much less military capability than you have, you lost. And not only that, let me tell you something. You know that they he banned Facebook and Twitter and all social media in, uh, in Russia. But guess what? Um, I was checking yesterday and there are people from Russia and there are people from Belarus and there are people from other Eastern European countries listening to the podcast. And the fact that some people from Russia are listening to this, this just shows that Putin's tactics are not working as they used to any longer, even in Russia. The information is getting out there. And that is, that is not a good thing for him. That is what he fears most. This is something a KGB guy from the 80s would think. I mean, has he never heard well, that people get a VPN to watch American Netflix in London? Has he never heard of this? This is not a hard problem well, to solve. I, it's not, I mean, for us, but let's be honest. Uh, I'm not technical at all. And a lot of people in Russia, if they're not, uh, especially certain demographics who are not living in the bigger cities like, like Moscow or St. Petersburg or, you know, the bigger cities in the rural areas, People don't know how to use VPN snail. Honestly, I would have to look it up and I'd have to Google how to do that. But right now I want to get back to the sanctions we have been imposing. Well, Putin imposed sanctions on Biden and US top officials. And of course, Hillary Clinton. And <laughs> she's the only one. So there's a list of all these officials that are in the government now, right? They're, that's their, they are working on those jobs now. The only person that is not a, a part of the government right now is Hillary Clinton, his nemesis. And of course, she's on that list. But uh, she responded on Twitter and she said, 
quote, I want to thank the Russian Academy for this Lifetime Achievement Award. <laughs> I love her. I'm so you can say whatever. So, okay. How many things can somebody in D.C. get from Russia? You could get Stoli Vodka. I think Absolute's made in Sweden, so not Absolute. Is Taka, is, is Taka from Russia? That's like the bar brand. So, but that's not a big loss. Yeah, I know a lot of other vodkas yeah. that people think are Russian. I mean, the names are Russian, like Stalinskaya. They are not actually produced in Russia. Some of them are produced in Montenegro and so on. So that is, and also I think the sanctions Putin is imposing on uh, <laughs> the Biden administration and Hillary. I think they're referring to a travel, basically all those people on the list, uh, all the those Americans and other foreign government officials that are against Russia, they well, have been banned I got from, news for from We were banned from going to Russia Which... in the 1950s. We were flying <laughs> over there every day. So, you know, at some point, you're going to have to yes. shoot or they're going to fly <laughs> over there anyway. <laughs> yeah, for that, you guys, you have to listen to the Dyatlov Pass episode. <laughs> we, we we clarify the situation there. That's a, We solved the, the Dyatlov mystery and we talked about the air traffic over the yeah. Ural Mountains in the, in the 1950s. Yeah, but I want to be clear about this. I am optimistic. NATO, the West, European Union, the world is united. Of course, except China, Belarus, Eritrea, North Korea, Syria, and the dictators of the world. But we are doing more for Ukraine. We have been doing more since we last recorded. And this makes me really happy. But there is still much more we must do. Let's not fool ourselves. We see what's going on in Mariupol, Lviv. Uh, Irpin, Odessa, Kharkiv, Dnipro, and so many other Ukrainian cities. This is far from over, and Ukrainians will need far more support to withstand the air attacks, and we need to make up for the initial slow and anemic response that we had and continue helping as much as we can with everything we can. It's much harder to take occupied territory back than to defend it before it's taken by the enemy. More importantly, you cannot revive all the people who lost their lives. That's why I still stand by my feelings that I expressed in part one, that we should have acted sooner and helped sooner. But better later than never, I am proud of what we're doing now. So we must keep at it, keep sending more help. We do have some atonement to do there. So we owe Ukraine, we owe them, especially after we promised them in 1994 in a treaty in the Budapest Memorandum that if they give up their nukes, we are going to assure their territorial sovereignty. Two things. Number one, this is all going to change the the future of what was likely to happen in terms of international relations. Um, in some ways that come to mind already, perhaps in other ways we don't know yet, but off the top of my head, it's not only Eastern European former Soviet satellite countries that want to be in the EU. Turkey also wants to be in the EU. And Turkey has provided the initial drones that have given Putin's armor in the Ukraine so much trouble. So uh, Turkey is got a big card to play in their favor in terms of moving along their possible admission to the EU. You know, Turkey is the central kind of the central location of the former Ottoman Empire. You know, they are there is they're an Islamic country, but they're not what we consider the Middle East. They're not uh they're not Syria, they're not Saudi Arabia, they're not no, they're right at the they're right at the uh, crossroads, so to speak. Yeah, they're at the crossroads exactly. So this probably changes their future because, uh, like I said before, we know now that uh, Putin's radar can't see those Turkish drones. So that's been a big part of Ukraine's ability to hold out up until this point. The other thing is, yes. It's it's easy to defend what you have. The other thing is, yes, as you said, it's it's a lot easier to defend the territory you have and fortify the territory you have than to take it back. So the next question is, is if it does keep turning around, how does Ukraine advance back east? To be honest, I'm my only hope is that somehow 
whatever the option, whatever the alternatives and whatever uh, the West chooses to do, I just hope this massacre stops. That's the thing. I don't care if they retreat or if the Ukrainians push them back. I just want this to end as soon as possible because innocent people are dying. And at, at some point, you know, like Zelensky said, a lot of red lines have already been crossed. So right now it's just a matter of acting faster, helping more, getting this done, uh, and making sure the Russian army stays in this precarious position that it is in now, but at the same time, not forgetting that their planes are in the sky, killing civilians and targeting uh, children, women, maternities, hospitals, and things like that. So it's a very tricky, sensitive situation, and geopolitically, it's a mess. But I think, as I said, I think our uh, approach is good. Also, I'm sure Putin is called... Uh... Xi Jinping and ask for help, I don't think there's been a response. So if China says no, that is another big change that is something different from the post-World War II era that we have all lived in for the last 50 years that is difficult to predict how that all pans out too. China is not the military aggressor, really, that Putin wants to be. They are much more concerned with, you know, when they want influence in another country, they go to them and say, we'll build you a port and we'll loan you money and stuff like that. They're not, uh, they're not exactly. showing up with tanks and MiGs. So if they don't have to. Yeah. And also it's not in China's interest to cut the economic ties with the West. It's not in their interest at all. And I really hope, I, I like what Biden is doing. He's pressuring China right now so that they take a stand and a clear position because this dilly-dally with China trying to play both sides, uh, it's not a good thing. We need to know where China stands. What was it? What was the word that congressman used? Um, I uh, don't remember. It's, uh, no, or, no, no. Uh, um, volatile. <laughs> volatile? You want to talk about, yeah, you want to talk about volatile? If China throws its head in with Putin, and uh, somebody in the U.S. makes the foolish mistake of imposing sanctions on Chinese exports, there won't be any Cheetos on the shelf at Walmart. That's, <laughs> that's volatile. Now, you want, you want to see volatile. Tell the, you, tell the Americans that they can't have their treats. And yes. they will be in the streets demanding somebody <laughs> atone for what has happened. I think that unless I'm completely missing something, the Chinese answer will probably be no. You got yourself into this mess. Um, We're not we getting. Will, we'll talk to the next yes. Vladimir Putin. Yes, and I gotta say it. this though, because earlier I was criticizing a Democrat who said some really silly things on TV. Now, the Republicans criticized Biden for not giving enough help to Ukraine and then voted against sending aid to Ukraine. And then again, in interviews, after they voted against sending aid to Ukraine, they criticized Biden for not doing enough. It's really, it's really ridiculous. And I just want to mention this because it's very important, I think. Um, there was a live video call with Zelensky, and it was between Zelensky and members of the Intelligence Committee. That happened, I think, last week. And these people, the people on the intelligence committee, were asked specifically to not tweet, to not post online about the meeting for security reasons, especially not during the meeting, as there had already been three assassination attempts on Zelensky's life. Literally minutes into the call, while the call was still unfolding, Marco Rubio and Steve Daines posted screenshots of Zelensky with captions like currently on a Zoom call with President Zelensky. Now, say what you will, but no, I don't think they're idiots. People were saying online, well, you know, they're idiots. They don't. I know. I think this was intentional. These are adults. These are not children. They were specifically asked to not do this because they'd be endangering, endangering Zelensky and they did it anyway. I'll stand by this. I do believe this was intentional and these two should not be on any committee, much less the intelligence committee, since they're lacking any. In fact, they should not hold public office at all. That's my point of view on that situation. I don't know where they're going to go in the future either. They're, they're in the same mess that Putin is. Uh, but that's a whole nother episode how... <laughs> You know, the Republican Party has is, is fractured itself all over one orange-painted reality TV star. <laughs> <laughs> 
Putin is believed to be preparing to use chemical and biological weapons in Ukraine. And we know that because he accused the United States of having biological laboratories in Ukraine, secret ones, which is his way of preparing the field, creating a pretext for himself to be able to use biological weapons by saying in the future, oh, uh, actually, no, it was the Ukrainians who blew up by mistake one of those facilities. Zelensky immediately responded, uh, and he clearly said the uh, Ukraine has no secret U.S. laboratories on its territory. Putin's disinformation war is continuing, and we all must be careful to not fall for the nonsense his armies of bots are putting out online. In general, if you want to know what Russia is up to, uh, pay attention to what they're accusing others of doing. It's textbook F uh, FSB modus operandi. So we must we must keep giving the Ukrainians good intelligence. We must keep helping and supporting them. I mean, them. everybody accuses what they're guilty of. That's not just the FSB. So if you want to see what anybody's hiding... You just, you know, when yeah. they point the finger at you, that's what they got in their closet. Don't, don't you worry. Like what? Like when I say you're stubborn, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for holding up that mirror. Thank you. <laughs> yes. No, it's interesting. You have sent see. the last email to me that tells me what <laughs> I have to cut out of what I said. That is never happening again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, let's never say never. You know, I think that's a safer. <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on. I think we did China, right? Or do I have to? I mean, I mean, it's like a three thousand year, four thousand year old empire. It's big. I mean, you know. <laughs> yes, and they make our and treats. they make our that treats. But I do think we'll handle this correctly, and I also think China. Hopefully, you know, you we we can't tell right now. We don't know. But hopefully China will make the right decision. And I think a good point to make is that NATO is actually changing. And this whole war that started with the West being, you know, a little scared of what Putin might do, might be Putin's undoing because this is the end of expansion for Putin's Russia, I think. And NATO is getting stronger. So this is something that uh, our former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, said. And he also wrote a very good book called From Cold War to Hot Peace. It's a good read. I highly recommend it just for people to get an idea of how things happen when you are on Russian soil as an American uh, diplomat. Now, um, the latest reports coming out of Moscow through our intelligence uh, people, suggests that Putin is afraid for his life and that uh, he thinks he might get poisoned, which makes sense, as I can only imagine that there are a few FSB or GRU higher-ups and some really pissed-off oligarchs because they don't like having their businesses in Russia and abroad threatened uh, and they don't like the sanctions that have become truly serious now. Now, the assassination attempts on Zelensky's life that we mentioned earlier obviously on Putin's orders, were prevented because some non-corrupt FSB fraction warned Zelensky. So people from inside the Kremlin actually tipped off the Ukrainians and helped save Zelensky's life three times. If anybody's done a good job, Zelensky's done a good job. Anytime you've got lesser personnel and numbers, lesser equipment, yes, yes. just lesser resources all around. And, you know, you manage to turn everything around, as I said before, this quickly. He's done a good job. I think the main thing exactly, he did exactly. was tell the U.S., no, I'm not going to move to Hawaii. No, thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll stay. Yes. I mean, he he had the uh, he had the backbone to do that, which put the ball back in their court because then they have to do something. They can't. Their gut, their gut instinct is to always do nothing, and he forced them to do something. Yes, and I do think Zelensky's words. I need ammunition, not a ride, are the words that changed everything. And that's when the Western powers started to really take some action. Now, about Putin and his fear of being uh, poisoned or assassinated in some way, I have to admit, I don't think I would be very upset if someone would, uh, you know, hypothetically put some Novichok on Putin's underwear like he did with Alexei Navalny. <laughs> Now, we're laughing about that, but that's how the FSB, on Putin's orders, almost killed Navalny. 
Navalny is still in prison and the Russian prosecutors uh, want to keep him there for at least one more decade, it seems. But yeah, that's what the FSB did. They put Novichok on his underwear. This is not a joke. Like, that really happened. And Alexei Navalny is Kremlin's most vocal critic still alive. And he urged the anti-war movement in a March 11 post on Instagram, put on a fight, it's definitely not going to be a futile fight. It continues, mad maniac Putin will most quickly be stopped by the people of Russia now if they oppose the war. He's not wrong. If the people of Russia amass together like one and all of them take to the streets now when Putin's regime is weakened, they might have democracy and free elections in the near future. Yeah, we mentioned a bit of that in the first episode, too, that the the Russians are just, uh, they've been unfortunate revolutionaries just through no fault of their own. I mean, so, you know, the the Soviet revolution succeeded uh, because they were even, you know, the czars were even more oppressive of the peasant class than the other feudal ruling classes in Europe were by a lot. That's why the Soviet revolution succeeded. And then as soon as it did, Lenin dies, and Trotsky refuses to take over, and that leaves them with Stalin for the next however many decades. So that was unfortunate. And then, you know, they managed to recover from the collapse of the Soviet Party in the early 90s, and then they get a drunken idiot with Boris Yeltsin, and nobody pays any attention uh, when he shuffles off into the sunset and the KGB comes back. So that wasn't very fortunate either. Maybe the third time's a charm. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe this would be the end of our buddy Putin. Exactly. And maybe That's the a Russians will point. get it right this time. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too, because the Russian people are also victims in this whole thing. Putin has been oppressing them. And what's even sadder, that most of them don't even know there are people in Ukraine who have relatives in Russia, and they told them on the phone, look, we are being bombed, our children are being killed and stuff. And... They said, look, those are the Nazis, it's not us. That's what they know. That's what Putin tells them through state media. But in conclusion, I would say that an iconic moment in the past week was when Maria Ovsianikova, a Channel One employee, interrupted the state-controlled live TV program in Russia with a big sign saying, stop the war, don't believe the propaganda, they're lying to you here, she said. And she also said, they can't arrest us all. So Russian people... If you can hear me, now is your time. You can do it. They can't arrest you all. Before you go, thanks for listening. And if you like our content, please subscribe. Go to dubiouspod.com. The link is in the show notes. You can subscribe to our bonus episodes for $5 a month. You get two episodes, one every other Monday. We are not a corporate production. There's no staff. It's just the two of us doing this in a lot of our spare time. So five-star reviews wherever you listen to us will also help immensely. We are at Dubious Pod on any social media you may use, so follow us. Also now our Dubious Pod on Reddit, so check us out there too. See you guys on the next one.